When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Taiba Batul, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Faiza Motasam. Dr. Motasam is an assistant professor of architecture in urbanism and urban design at the University of Southern California School of Architecture. Her research explores how the agency of individuals and communities in shaping their urban built environments um, using their personal resources and per- political connections is integral to our understanding of the planning, functioning, and everyday lived experiences of cities around the world. On the episode today, we will be talking about uh, Faiza's first book, Congratulations, Master Plans and Encroachments, The Architecture of Informality in Islamabad, published by University of Pennsylvania Press uh, this very month, October 2023. This is the first study that brings together informalities of the privileged and underprivileged in the high modernist city of Islamabad in Pakistan. Welcome, Faiza, and thank you for being with us today. And thank you, Tayyaba, for inviting me. I'm super excited for this conversation. Uh, likewise. Um, so before we get into the book itself, um, could you please share a little bit about your background, how you came to uh, the discipline and how you came to write this book? Yes, uh, of course. So I was trained as an architect in Pakistan. And so living and working in Pakistan, I, Islamabad was a, quite a fascinating place to me because of its history as a formerly master planned modern city designed by a famed Western architect. Um, so I was also, in addition to my interests in architecture, long before I became an architect, I also grew up in nearby cities in Islamabad. So I was quite familiar with the context of this place. And I had certain kinds of uh, associations with Islamabad that uh, stuck with me for a long period of time. And that in many ways shaped this book. So for instance, I was uh, quite aware of Islamabad's elite status, that it was a very expensive city, very unaffordable. But I was also quite, um, uh, you know, sort of taken by the different pockets of low-income, outwardly irregular communities that exist all over this very expensive city. So there were these kind of visuals that I had in mind over the years that I um, visited Islamabad, um, you know, in school, and then, of of course, uh, learned more about the city as an uh, undergraduate student in architecture um, that sort of shaped uh, my interest and sparked my interest in this topic. Um, just quickly, fast forward, uh, after my undergrad, I practiced in Rawalpindi for an Islamabad also for a couple of years as a professional architect. Um, and then it was during this time period, I realized that I actually I was also quite interested in research and teaching. And so I started working first as a part-time instructor at a architecture school in Rawalpindi. And that led me to um, this real, again, recognition, realization that maybe I was more interested in, um, pursuing research and teaching rather than designing, you know, beautiful buildings for wealthy people. Um, and so I decided to pursue my PhD in architectural history and theory 
around 2009, and that led me to the project that this book is based on. Super. Um, and perhaps for listeners who might be not as familiar with the context of South Asia, urbanism, Pakistan, Islamabad, could you perhaps drop on um, some key characteristics, some images of the place that we are talking about? Yes. Yeah, so Islamabad is a quite a unique place in um, cities when you think about urbanism in South Asia, primarily because it was designed um, as a new, quote unquote, built from scratch capital of Pakistan in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, and the other aspect of its uniqueness has to do with the fact that it is uh, it was designed according to the dominant principles of high modernist planning. So without going too much into detail of what that means, um, it, it was this, this uh, you know, uh, different kinds of um, ideas and ideals of planning that were popularized during the first half of the 20th century um, by different um, Western architects that based uh, that that were interested in uh, city making from a purely a professional and highly rational and scientific point of view. And so um, those ideas that get, then get um, transported to other parts of the world, in, including Pakistan. And also we have examples of a high modern city in India, that the city of Chandigarh, where you have these really interesting places that, that were built according to a very rational plan scheme. You have a, a grid of um, modules of different neighborhoods that are called sectors, um, and so these sectors are the way they are organized around the grid and, they, and then they get named in these really funny ways. You have you know, sectors that are named according to letters and numbers. Um, and so all of them, all of these features were uh, the point towards a very highly rational, um, really, um, you know, different mode of planning than was prevalent at the time in a place like Pakistan, in a place like South Asia. Um, so you have these really unique um, examples of high modernism in um, these different places um, that, that, you know, that, that uh, to me become really interesting examples of understanding how uh, city making actually works. And I can talk more about uh, why I chose this um, later on, but just to, for, for now, I think that's enough to say that um, we are talking about cities that are not your typical, um, you know, uh, cities in, in India or Pakistan. These are cities that have been designed with a very clear planning or ideology according to a master plan um, and based on ra scientific rationality. Right. Um, yeah, I think that is definitely what like Islamabad is often uh, in the news for is the master plan and the different um, discussions and arguments and critiques on on the master plan. Um, but, and Let's maybe um, take a step back and, you know, talk about what is a master plan. And in my common, like the common understanding, it's usually an urban planning document that structures a city in two different zones, residential, commercial, um, green areas. And it also is a sort of a future looking uh, document to anticipate how the city will grow, where will it expand, um, and one of the things I really enjoy reading in your book is this argument that you draw out on how the urban form on ground can be and is typically radically different from the paper or the set of documents. And the implications then um, that experience of the form has uh, for society from social, cultural, economic and legal lens. Could you say more about the importance of a master plan and how it really helps us to understand realities on ground? Yeah, so um, I think I'm I I'm not going to add more to what you described, um, what you said about the master plan because that was totally on point, Tayeba. So master plan, you said, like you said, is a blueprint. Um, it's a, a planning document. It exists on paper. Um, it is. Um, meant to uh, direct future planning. Um, and so in the case of Islamabad, um, we have a master plan document that was initially developed in the 1950s, late 50s, 1959 to be exact, um, by Doc Constantinos Doxiadis, who's a Greek modern architect. Um, and so there, there's a document that exists from that time period. 
Um, and it's something that is celebrated even till date. So this is this document is still displayed on the walls of, um, for instance, um, the city's development authorities main offices and and so you you and then there are other places around the city uh, where you would see this wall this initial master plan being um displayed in like various as various landscape features even like as as a form of a decorative landscape feature there's a, a master plan um that is up in Damniko which is again a touristic uh open like a public space and so um, if anyone who's familiar with Islamabad and who lives or visits Islamabad um, knows about and, ha- and has a clear understanding that this is a city that has been planned according to a master plan. So so the relevance of master plan is always there for um, a place like Islamabad. But in the book, I, uh, as, as obviously a researcher of this place, but also as a long time, um, you know, visitor of uh, the city, um, I was also very well aware that many things in the city actually happen um, that are not part of the master plan or that have actually now shaped the master plan, which is very different from the original uh, version of this of, of the document. Um, and yet it often doesn't get registered as such. Um, it often, you know, we are still talking about Doxiadis' master plan as if it's very much intact and um, directing future planning, surely it has influencing, it has, it has influenced much of the city's development, but there's so much happening, like you said, on the ground um, that is not part of the document. And yet um, this on the ground uh, action is um, in many ways informed by the document or shapes the document. So for me, this was an interesting Thing to map in relationship to document, not only to not, not just to not to say that things didn't work out, and so these are the things that didn't work out according to the master plan, but to see this master plan as this living document, um, and that gets consulted by people who are encroaching, that gets adapted to encroachments that have taken place in, in Islamabad, and so so um, so it becomes this really important lens to understand city-making as, as it's happening on ground. Um, and that's a great transition to um, to getting into maybe, um, you know, the different chapters and the different arguments that we see uh, in this brilliant book is one of the key ones, key argument that you bring up is around informality. And before uh, our next question on, on the class dimensions of informality, I'm wondering if you might want to reflect a little bit on how does informality rest in rest in the physical, the material, the architecture of the city. Um, and here I'm really thinking through the distinction you make between kacha and pakka. And simultaneously, how does that informality associate with ownership of the land um that is being claimed upon that claims are being made upon yeah so i will talk more explicitly about one of the two kinds of informality that uh, i mentioned in the book so um the two kinds being elite and ordinary informality and so um ordinary informality is a is a useful uh concept to answer some of the questions that you um have asked so um because of a uh, my training as an architect, I was always quite attentive to the forms that informal spaces take. And so that really led me to this distinction between elite and ordinary informality. So ordinary informality, as I describe in, in the book, is a concept um, that, uh, that, that helps us understand how certain kinds of informally built spaces um, employ materials and techniques that are perceived to be temporary. Are less permanent. So um, perception is really important here because I'm not saying that these places are um, definitely, most definitely um, flimsy and temporary, but there's something about the perception of that space um, as being temporary that's really important to this, um, to my analysis. So you asked about the distinction between kacha and paka uh, landscapes, uh, in the built landscapes. Um, and so if you're thinking about France colony, which is one of my case studies, uh, which is an Kachiabadi, an informal settlement in Islamabad, there you can see this distinction at play in terms of how the state creates these designations. 
between spaces that it recognizes as legitimate and spaces that it recognizes as illegitimate. So um, it's really interesting when I started learning about the Kacha and Paka distinction. So some dwellings in France colony, Kachia Badi were had a had a kacha number, the others had paka, paka number. And so kacha and paka um, simply in, translate can translate it into like raw for kacha and paka will be like something that's fully baked, cooked. <laughs> and so it has something to do with like the um like the materiality of these spaces. Um but also at the same time conceptions about uh you know temporary and permanence, temporariness and permanence. And so even though they were all in Akachibadi, all essentially a part of an ordinary informal space, um, there were some were designated as and recognized as um, more paka, meaning more formal, um, because of the way the city had created these categories. The city had these designations. So it, it again, it's a longer discussion where the how does the city does it, but they have this suffice it to say that they have a system where some dwellings are legal, uh, considered legitimate um, in con- contrast to others. Um, and so, so to going back to this point about um, uh, architectural forms and aesthetics, this kachapaka business becomes really um, important because um, it is something that you see in documents. So a lot of times in official documents, um, uh, you can, you read about how something is that is not part of the master plan, but it is allowed on a temporary basis. Uh, so it's almost like you can tolerate something if, as long as we, we frame it as temporary, even if it, it has a longer history, even if it exi- has been in place for several decades. Um, in official discourse, it's considered as something that's impermanent and hence can be removed if needed. Um, and so it's not so much, so much of, so it's tolerated in other words. Um the other thing I want to add is, yeah, so you asked also about the ownership and association with land. So it also, that also is interesting and somewhat related to this discussion of, um, of uh, materiality. Um, so how do you own a space that doesn't legally belong to you? So the France colony example tells us that people uh, gain ownership of a plot of land or a piece of a parcel of land in this neighborhood that has not been built upon by gaining physical control of it. So the physicality of the space, again, becomes important. The materiality becomes important. And if you know, you put a fence there or you somehow uh, make claims to that open space and say it's mine. And it is, and that that in itself um, is part of this larger social system of people, um, you know, accepting that if you claim something, if you're able to claim something, obviously, um, through force in many cases, you can be its legitimate owner and you can demand uh, money and in exchange uh, for that space. Um, similarly, you know, people are constantly involved in buying and selling property, built property in France colony. Again, by virtue of them being physically there and occupied that space and then building on that space over time. So, um, to just wrap up this uh, concept of ordinary informality, I think it's really interesting to see like how time and physical space come together to help people make these claims to space that do not legally belong to them. Yeah, I think that's a that's really enlightening because I we are, what we understand from the example the case study of the France colony in Islamabad is a also an attention to questions of housing, security, insecurity, and um, also to describe a little bit like France Colony is a um, a low-income, mostly Christian-majority um, neighborhood. So there is a lot more to be said also around maybe minority politics and um, how the state is trying to create a, a version of what the high modernist city and the forms of inclusion that it may possibly have um but thinking just with this like idea of time i think it might be a good transition to our next question about um the other concept that you also introduce on long term long term temporariness and this is um so um i sort of juxtapose that to the idea of residence and housing that's created in france colony that's a form of like long term 
uh, informal settlements that eventually find um, legal recognition, but is the idea of long-term temporariness with tea stalls, dhabas, um, uh, portable displays that can be dismantled and taken down at night. So their form of um, informal settling is embedded in in the everydayness. Um, and yeah, so how how did you sort of think about this idea of like long-term temporariness? Because this is a concept and that you frame your argument for uh, the work of informality as it's happening within and without the within the master plan and outside of its jurisdictions. Yeah, I love this idea of uh, long-term temporariness myself because um, I, uh, you know, I, this is, so time, space, obviously these have been studied before and also sometimes in the context of street vending. Um, I love it so much because um, I kept on reading and hearing city officials, reading in documents, official documents and hearing from city officials um, and even like uh, builders of these um, makeshift structures, how these spaces are, are temporary. Like they were insisting constantly that they are temporary. And then I started correlating. I was like, okay, so how this is how is this temporary if this, this structure has been um, in the same place for ten years? Like I, I met some street hawkers or sorry, uh, I guess vendors who um, had been trading in the same spot on a sidewalk in uh, next to a commercial plant commercial market for 15 years so then you know it obviously it wasn't temporary in the in the sense that they they they, they were like there for, for those so long and and yet they themselves and city officials and the documents that they possessed sometimes uh, you know the licenses trading licenses that they had they all insisted that this was temporary so um i for me that made sense to look at it from architectural uh, perspective, uh, the perspective of, of architectural forms and aesthetics, um, that there was something about the way they were building these spaces that added and contributed towards this notion of temporariness um, that allowed them to sustain themselves for long periods of time. And so um, that led me to like more interesting realization that they were building with materials like um, you know, mud, wood or bamboo but also like uh, more modern materials like tarp and steel poles and 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 all of these materials none of them are really like not they're all quite durable they're not um from a strength perspective they they can last for long periods of time and yet we associate them uh those these structures with temporary because of the way they were put together so the construction techniques and the material aspects of these spaces were really interesting um, parts of this, uh, the, the configuration of the long-term temporariness, because it it sort of uh, it almost became like an oxymoron, like, is it long-term? Is it temporary? What is it? Um, and that's why I really am fond of this term. Um, and um, one other thing I want to mention is that even though oftentimes, uh, and in the book too, I talk about ordinary um, squatter settlements, like Kachibadis and uh, vendor stalls that are put up every day by low-income uh, traders in the city, uh, middle-income and upper-income people often also build structures that are ordinary and that that sort of uh, can be fall under this category of long-term temporariness. So, for instance, um, Deva, you may be well familiar with this site and this visual that you know you go to an expensive uh, shop and. Uh, let's say a place like Blue Area, which is like this uh, master planned commercial hub of the entire city. And, you know, you can see people in these shops that they're renting for several hundred thousands of rupees um, that they are meaning that these are expensive rents. Um, but even those people, they rarely ever confine their merchandise to the shop itself. They are often you can see them put out their displays. Uh, whether it's furniture or whether, whether it's electronics or whether it's like even a fridge that's selling uh, bottles of Coke and juice boxes, they put them outside um, every morning and then they pull them back in every night. And so they are also encroaching in this way where they're temporarily occupying public spaces, sidewalks, corridors and streets in front of their shops. Um, and they are like retreating every night 
um, and restoring this, uh, you know, pedestrian public character of these uh, um, circulation spaces. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it is all like tied into this, uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the practice of occupying spaces using techniques, construction techniques, or just like a spatial techniques that are temporary, but then that connect often, that often last for long periods of time. Yeah, and I I have to say uh, your examples around Blue Area were so point on. In my own experience, every time I've tried to find parking, um, so just for listeners, like Blue Area is this uh, mark. This is like what was envisioned as the downtown strip, uh, with a lot of shops and every commercial um, sort of activity. All commercial buildings is always. Um, always congested so there's never enough parking and one of the ways that shopkeepers sort of guarantee parking for their customers is by placing um, concrete block holes or plants in front of uh, in designated parking spaces and in my personal encounter I went once uh, someone stopped me from parking in front of their uh, shop but I told them I'm not going to this shop I'm going to this other place nearby even though it's a public space which is like it's state-owned space um, state-owned road um, and I, I think that's such a, you know, it really like gets to this idea of this, this uneasy temporariness of, upon whom nobody has any right technically, but it really unsettles that idea of, of what it means to put your body and or your materials out there. Um, and yeah, I think those examples really like unsettle like this, you know, fixity of the master plan and we're and how people will be circulating um, around it. Um, and I think the other thing, I maybe you can talk a little bit about this, but your book is full of amazing photographs and visuals. Um, what was, how did you sort of, you know, and I, I, and I asked this question because I'm also, I also work with a lot of like material that, that makes it necessary for me to document green spaces. Um, so how did you, you know, think about what photographs you would be taking. How would you, where would you insert them in the in the book with the narrative? Um, and these are all, a lot of them are landscape photographs. So just a little bit of the process, if you could share. Yeah, um, you know, again, um, it's really challenging to um, map many of these processes, especially the ones that I am, um, you know, I, I talk about in the book as being temporary and as being fleeting, you know, how do you map something that's fleeting? So that was always a challenge and I struggled a lot with that. Um, In terms of photographs, I think it was important as I was doing my research, and this is an advice um, that I received from my, one of my advisors to take obviously many photos, but also to take photos that uh, put this object that I'm interested in, in context. And that helped out in the long run term because um, I, you know, whatever object I'm talking about, it is like you're saying in a landscape and, and, and so it, it helps to not just take zoomed in photos, but also to, um, expand that lens and see what's happening around it, um, to, to, to use in your analysis, um, of that particular object that you're examining. Um, also, I think my training in, you know, mapping and like just drafting, and helped in some ways to map some of the things that I could not pre- uh, uh, document through photographs. And so, you know, there, there are some drawings that I, that I made um, to and visuals and illustrations that I think are helpful in understanding the thing that I wish there was a way, and maybe at some level, uh, at some point uh, I would um, might invest some time and energy into it, but um, that would be helpful is to have some kind of like videos with these kind of projects, just for the same reason, as I mentioned that earlier, that it's so challenging to map urbanism as it's playing out in real time. Like it's just, it's not like just one photo and you take it and it's done. Like there's just so much happening around that scene. Um, and then the scene changes over the course of the day. And then there's signs, uh, sounds um, and smells that go with that scene that cannot be documented in like a still photograph. And so I think, it would it would be great if projects like these that to try to get at how cities are functioning can also incorporate 
um, a video element and I know others have done it and it's just a matter of uh, me getting down to it and, and, and doing that work. But I think that would have been a nice compliment to this project if, if there was like a video compilation of different um, clips that, um, you know, helped us uh, kind of help us get, gain a better understanding and feel of the place, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's super. That's a great idea. And I do think at some level, the photographs and the way you place them in uh, as moments of action or how they're like three photographs that, you know, tell us about different um different angles of the same surrounding. Uh, They do a really good job. Uh, We'll move on. And the next question that I had to, you know, uh, maybe encounter the other side, the the other form of encroachment um, that we learn about in the book is this um, very strong notion that encroachments are not class specific. Um, uh, It's not just low income, poor residents, uh, citizens who need to find space in the city in under a state that has given them the form of uh, housing security or economic security. But they can also, that encroachments can be elite-driven projects. And in particular, in Chapter 4, there is a figure of a rich housewife in the form of Mrs. Nabila, who goes on to buy land in the villages around Islamabad and builds her dream house in a protected area, a natural uh, zone under the master plan. Uh, the setting is the village of Panikala, which is this he- heavenly oasis. And over time, over several decades, has now been formalized as an upper class neighborhood. Uh, how how did you come to thinking with Mrs. Nabila's, uh, Mrs. Nabila is the corrector, um, in this story that you talk about and just, you know, just reflections on the different processes that frame your conceptualization of elite informality. Yeah, uh, this is, yeah, this was, um, this happened over the course of the project and that obviously I, I started out with uh, space, mapping spaces of what I call, not call ordinary, ordinary informality primarily built by um, low-income people, residents, and business class people in the city. But over the course of my research, uh, there was, and this was also like at the time I was doing this work, there was a lot of discussion about illegal stuff that is happening um, in, that, that was happening at the time um, in Islamabad that were driven by elites. So there was like this big court case at the time. Well, there were a couple of court cases. Uh, one was about um, the privatization of a large public park in Islamabad. And that was turned down um, through this court proceeding. The other one was about this uh, large farmhouse that was built by um, the then military dictator, General Musharraf, um, in a protected region, uh, which where uh, part of where, where Mrs. Nabila's house is also uh, located. So the protected region being the national park. So there were these large farmhouses that were uh, being built illegally there. And so there was all this, uh, obviously, discussion around, you know, wealthy people breaking the law, wealthy people breaking the law. So then um, then that sort of led me to this other direction in my project where I then decided to pursue um, informality, not as something that the underprivileged are engaged in primarily, but something that also very wealthy people engage with and see what what that looks like and, you know, how they're similar and different and so on. Um, And so um, in uh, Mrs. Nabila's case, for instance, as you mentioned, we have someone who was basically interested in building a dream home for herself and her family. And in that search, um, she, along with a few other wealthy, influential people in Islamabad, um, around the 1980s, um, 1990s, decided to take on city development project on their own in this really beautiful scenic part of the city. Again, this part of the city was completely protected. So nobody was allowed to build any houses there. Um, there. You could build like institutional buildings and educational buildings, but very limited construction overall. Um, but then we have people like Miss Nabila and her friends discover uh, new sites in the city where they could build large, lavish properties in these beautiful locations. 
Um, and so that is an interesting way of looking at city planning because this type of planning is not happening in an architect's office somewhere in CDA, but it's actually happening probably in the drawing rooms and in the private spaces of the influential people who are thinking creatively about um, subverting the master plan or thinking creatively about what options do they have in the city at the time where they can go and build. Um, and so for Ms. Nabila in particular, she was not interested in buying a really expensive, um, you know, plot of land in a seat in, in a city's developed, uh, like one of the developed sectors, because it would have, she wanted like a, like a acres and acres of property to live on. And so that was a, would have cost her a fortune if she had um, gone to the city's offic- uh, officially developed, um, uh, you know, sectors. And so then what was her alternative? You know, again, that knowledge, I think, is really, uh, you know, the, the fact that people like Ms. Nabila have that kind of knowledge of the master plan and of the places that are part of the city. And they use that knowledge that, hey, this is a space that is undeveloped, that's not owned by uh, C- the, the city's development authority yet. Um, we can go there first. We can buy that pl- property directly uh, from the local village owners and we can build as we wish is really remarkable. Um, and, and that's what I think is so fascinating about that particular chapter and the her story um, that it all, uh, you know, it, it was a very different form of planning um, and it involved very unconventional type of actors. Yeah. And for sure, I think it also really just gestures us to uh, there's a moment in that chapter where they, uh, Mrs. Nabil and her husband are trying to document their exchange with the Capital Development Authority on staying here, like, and their claim over the land to stay. And on, and there's also the other part where there's uh, a confrontation with uh, these bulldozers who have come to demolish uh, the the build up structures that are that are very much permanent. And it is just, um, it's really like another way of you know, looking at at a, at how different forms of um, different forms of, I think the status quo are sort of reestablished and reinscripted um, on on the physical landscape. Um, maybe we can uh, go to one of the things that you talk about towards the end is uh, in in the book where you write that. Instead of imposing an abstract idea onto geographic and social space and projecting confidence about its future outcomes, design professionals and official planning authorities must be willing to accept flexibility and contingency as inherent conditions of official planning paradigms. Uh, What were some of the policy implications or modalities of city making that you can see this translate into so that I wrote that sentence in particular uh, uh, for people who are involved in the business of designing um, cities and buildings, like particularly architects, urban planners, urban designers, and also planning officials in you know different cities, especially in places like Islamabad, um, who are uh, still working under this impression that they can design cities with starting with like an abstract idea such as the master plan and then that master plan will magically implement as they have designed it and you know everything is going to be go as planned um i think many people already know by now you know from uh citizens to uh real scholars of you know of urban spaces and that it's really not that simple, you know, you can, plans rarely go as intended. And so I think there needs to be a recognition, first and foremost, uh, by planning professionals and officials that um, your plans will go in different ways, will not go as planned. Um, And so once you have the recognition, then you can better adapt to those unanticipated outcomes of your planning um, activity. And so for, for me, I think this is something that uh, can totally be done because when you think about what happened 
to us during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, we see the way cities and built spaces adapted almost instantaneously to these new unprecedented challenges. And if, uh, and many new, you know, many kinds of uh, restrictions were lifted to make things work in this new kind of situation. Um, and so, and many of them really work. So I'm thinking in particular about like in, play, in, in, in the United States, for instance, there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, transformation of parking lots and streets and sidewalks into open air eating facilities. And that were, would normally would not have happened because that would have been kind of considered a kind of encroachment. Like you don't take over public spaces. They're, they're, you know, they, they're just for pedestrians or cars and so on. Um, and yet the flexibility really allowed us to function in this really difficult moment, but also showed us that it's totally fine. You know, we can do that. We can, we can have a, a planning a framework that is adaptive, adaptive and flexible. And so I think that the same kind of flexibility, um, you know, play in, in places like Islamabad, you know, we can benefit from the same kind of flexibility as part of the planning process where you do not anticipate, where you almost, almost, most definitely anticipate that things will not go as planned. And so you make room for that and you adapt uh, accordingly because that's already happening on ground. It just needs to be recognized at a, at a more institutional level. Hmm. Absolutely. I'm, And I wonder like if that also, you know, brings us to thinking about what can South Asia urbanism, this idea of like innovation with whatever space you have, uh, tell us about, forms of urbanism, urban design, uh, urban restructuring that is happening elsewhere. And this was, uh, and I think I really liked how you, in the sort of, um, also in the last parts of the, maybe this was the conclusion or uh, the epilogue where you talk about your own experience in trying to find housing in the U.S. Uh, And the same challenges, uh, that the challenges in the U.S. and in other places in the global south aren't really very different. Um, so I really appreciated that attention to, you know, centering us to this, to our sort of shared challenges, um, which uh, also brings us to a question around the challenge of publishing and being a first-time author. Could you sort of maybe like situate us a little bit about, you know, your timelines of when you were doing the research into when we are reading about this research many years later and your whole like the process of uh, getting there, you know, how what is the process for authors to get their first book out? What does it look like? All right. So how much time do we have? (laughs) Because this was a very long, long process and I appreciate um, having the space to discuss it only because. I think when we hear about a new book from a, um, you know, from a new scholar, from a young scholar, um, oftentimes, at least that was my perception and assumption that the project was great. And so it got picked up by a good press and it was published. You know, it was like a very simplistic view of how publishing happened, because it seemed to me like the hard part would be the research part and the publishing would be, you know, if you have a good project, it'll get published. End of story. Um, when I went um, th- through this process, I encountered many challenges. And so I really, uh, maybe that's not true for others, but I know that it was true for me. And so I want to to normalize the idea that it is it is difficult to publish your book, especially as a first-time author, um, especially as an author who's writing on a place like Islamabad. Um, and that is really important message that I do want to share with um, whoever is listening. So um so uh, the large thing I would say about the, the biggest challenge that I would say about this uh, whole process for me was that a lot of things happened along the way that had very little to do with me. So that's something that is important for people to recognize that you may have a great, good project. You may have you have done everything right. You may be, you know, uh, start writing early and meet, meet all the deadlines, but there are things that are beyond your control. So for instance, um, you know, the first thing that uh, any new uh, um, uh, aspiring uh, first time author has to do is to find a press. And um, they're the bigger, biggest question is that of a fit. And so you, again, you may have an exciting project, but if it's not a good fit then for the press, then they're just going to turn it down. And so 
very quickly I realized that my project, because of his interdisciplinary orientation, could only be a good fit under um, publishers that had a sorry under under the urban studies um, genre of based publishing um, like uh, publishers. And so um, that then and then within that, there were very few people who were publishing, few, few publishers who were um, interested in works that had to do with cities in the so-called global south. And so the, it really narrowed down the people, the, the presses that could even be interested in a project like mine. I, I think it was just a handful. Um, and then within that, the, then the hard thing is to get attention of a, of a publisher, acquisition publisher. That's not easy. You know, oftentimes people never respond to you um, or, you know, I got lucky. I had a good, good initial response, but then um, then came this long review process. I, I Long story short, it, it, everything, I was at an advanced stage. My book had been reviewed, The this particular press um it was a flashy brand, uh, branded pr- press. Um, their their editor invited uh, me to respond to the reviewers' report, which is like just to say that it's like the last stage before the contract is issued. Um, and then something happened internally with this press, and this editor um, was um, unable to, or, or they had they wanted to de- delay the contract stage. So that delays and these kind of things, um, they can really uh, be costly to young scholars who are on a uh, tenure track clock. And so um, I had to walk away from that press and that editor. Um, and I lost uh, over a year just because of that decision. But one that led me to my current uh, press and where I found a really amazing um, editor. So I guess what I'm trying to say with the, all these uh, this long uh, drawn story is that um, you don't have control over which presses you work you, you're going to work with, and then you don't have control over the kind of editors you're going to find. Um, and so you may be doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, and yet you will find you might find, as I did, these roadblocks. And so what gets less talked about is the power that publishing publishers and editors have over the career of young scholars um, in academic institutions. And then like all the contingencies that come with being in in this kind of working in a system like this, where, you know, all you can do is hope for the best and for all the stars to align. And so um, it is, you know, you look at a book that's published, oftentimes there's like a long story and years and years of background work that is often not linked to the actual research or the writing of it. It It has to do with all these other extra unknowns. So I just wanted to say that um, in case someone else is also struggling to get the uh, first book out, it is a, it can be a challenging thing um, with no fault of your own, your own. Paisa, thank you so much for just sharing that. I, again, I haven't never, I've never been in the publishing process. Uh, so it's really, um, it's both insightful, but it's also, a, you know, it's good to be prepared. Like, I think that's what one of the messages is the second message is that I am just so shocked that nobody picked up uh, a book that is so relevant and timely, especially in the context of a city that is the capital of uh, the second largest country in South Asia and has been very um, has not been written upon as much. Um, I myself work in uh, in Pakistan um, in Islamabad in Rawalpindi. So that's why this is going to be, you know, one of those gems that I'm going to be drawing upon a lot. So I'm really glad that uh, the University of Pennsylvania Press has been able to sort of facilitate the the emergence and shape uh, for, you know, scholar, future scholars, current scholars uh, in in the region and on the discipline. Um, yeah, thank you. I think it's great we were able to create the space as well to just uh, voice it because I do think these conversations often go unheard. Um, but let's get down to like more, maybe like an, on an optimistic note and, uh, you know, talk about your dreams and what are you currently working on now? What's the next big project or projects? Yeah. So for my next project, I will, I'm, I'm interested in looking at the topic of urban displacement. Um, so the question that I, um, have, has sort of been with me for a long time and that I want to now explore next is, 
Um, how does one find space after being displaced? You know, as you know, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, we have uh, many instances of people being forced out of their homes, their neighborhoods, their countries. <laughs> Excuse me. And so uh, my initial plan was to stay with Pakistan. And there I, I started doing some preliminary work as I was writing this book on IDPs, internally displaced people, populations in Pakistan, Pakistani cities. But then at that exact time, COVID-19 happened. And so traveling became very challenging. And um, what ended up happening was that I had to pivot to a local city. In my case, it was Los Angeles. Um, And I started working on urban displacement there, um, in particular housing struggles of low-income renters and unhoused people. And so while I hope to return to my initial interest in um, displacement in Pakistani cities, for now, this is uh, working on LA has been more of my focus, um, but it has been a productive switch because it, you know you talked earlier about you know what might cities in, uh, and urbanism in places like South Asia teach other places. Um, it has been productive for me to find commonalities between um, space, struggles over space um, involving marginalized communities in very diverse places and like. Islamabad on the one hand and Los Angeles on the other hand, you know, the quintessential uh, global South city versus the so-called quintessential global North city. Um, And so this, this has been, you know, I'm using a lot of the things that I learned about urbanism from Islamabad in my new work. Um, And I, so I hope that eventually it can build into a more of a comparative project on urban displacement. Um, And so I'm really excited about that possibility as well. But for now, it is uh, housing struggles of tenants, low-income tenants, and unhoused people in LA. Oh, fascinating. Uh, Thank you again, Faiza, for joining us today, for sharing your brilliant work. Um, And I know there's so much more we can talk about from this book, uh, but I do encourage our listeners to check it out. It's called Master Plans and Encroachments, The Architecture of Informality in Islamabad. with that, we'll say our goodbyes. Thank you again, Faiza, and uh, really grateful for your time and your thoughts here. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure to speak with you, Tayyaba. Uh, good luck with your work, and thanks again for giving me this space.